Hi guys and welcome back to Third Culture Africans. I feel like each week I am enjoying the conversations and leaning more into each guest and, and their journey and, and seeing a little bit more into the minds of what it takes to create and then what it takes to share and, and somehow retain yourself in that journey. On this week's episode, our guest is Chuma Wukolo, who is an advocate for justice and has found a way to weave in activism through his work. As an award-winning writer, he is a literary who has found ways to capture a generation's journey in his work beautifully. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did sitting with Chuma and, and working through how his work is a representation or even a documentation of his thinking. Welcome to another episode of Third Culture Africans. I am your host, Zezo Sal. I created the show as a resource for our community of Africans and African diaspora. A safe and honest place to share, inspire, motivate, and most importantly, celebrate those in our communities doing purposeful work and shifting the needle on our culture. Your support is invaluable to the show, so please subscribe or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and leave us a review on your favorite streaming platform. You are valid, you are strong, and you are just getting started. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of Third Culture African Streamer. It's my pleasure entirely, Zizi. Wonderful. So each guest on the show gets a, 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 an intro from me because I think often we're all hyphenated, but often, you know, no one ever gives you that introduction in, in its entirety, um, I, I would hope. Um, and so my hope is to be able to do that. So you are a poet, writer, reader, speaker, literary human as well as a lawyer did i get that right is that everything That's correct. Yep. wonderful so i guess you've written eight books amongst writing pretty much for the last 15 years a blog akin to i guess the likes of seth godin who write as a practice if i'm if i'm hitting the nail on the head there but i would like to sort of start with your journey into becoming, I guess, Chuma Wukolo today, the poet, the writer, the reader, the speaker, the lawyer, um, and, and your journey into actually becoming, you know, someone who is an African, well, considered an African literary. You studied in, well, born in Nigeria, studied in Jos up until, I guess, university. And then you were called to the bar in 1984. Yeah, my journey actually started in Jos, <clears throat> but that's about it. I was born in Jos. I left as a toddler. Mm. So my memories of Jos started actually during my youth service when I went back there. But uh, I was uh, in, the, in Biafra during the war period, perhaps I should say in uh, Asaba during the, uh, during the war period. Incredible. So my schooling days started basically when I came back basically as an internally displaced person to Lagos. <laughs> that should be the language um, of the moment, really. And uh, so I went to secondary school, primary secondary school in Lagos. And then I went to university in uh, UNN, University of Nigeria and Suka, in Enugu campus. Yeah. So that, that, was, my, that was my university, my, my education, basically. So all, all of this is, is, is happening... The Biafran War is over, and then this is life after the war, and you're still in, I guess, growing up and living in the middle of, I guess, that transition. No, I was born in 63. The war started in 66 and yes. 67. So, yes, uh, I, I lived through the war period as a child. So um, if, you, if you remember any of those uh, Kwashoko babies, yes, uh, that was my generation. And uh, so it, it was basically a, a, a time of, um, it's a little bit difficult uh, considering where we are now as a country, when we, when we consider the lessons we've learned and the lessons we've failed to learn. 
Yes. But yes, uh, there are still quite a, a, a percentage of our demographic that lived through that war, either as full participant or as uh, child participants who experienced it and who survived it. Can you remember much about the years following the war living in Asaba at the time? And I guess the regeneration of life post something like that. Well, uh, up till now, there are still a few places where you can see scars of the war, but it's mostly been a fist, you know, buildings. And uh, if you want to see scars of a civil war, you probably have to go back to the Northeast. Now, that is where you'll see, you know, scars of a civil war, because when you pass through Bogo Haram ravaged country, there is really no difference between what you see there and what you see, what you saw back then. So that's something of a secular nature of life, you know. Uh, yes. And uh, in terms of a memory of growing up, really, most of my memories come from the eyes of older people because uh, Asaba obviously suffered the, the trauma of the massacre, which, was, uh, which happened when uh, the soldiers of the Nigerian army came to the, to the Nigerian town of Asaba because Asaba was really not part of the secession, being in the Midwestern region. That's part of Nigeria that was formerly Western Nigeria. Yeah, and the massacre occurred in 1967. Yes, and so the, the, after the massacre happened, the, the, you know, there were up to 3,000 people who lost their lives there, unarmed civilians who were killed. Um, mostly, uh, we suspect part of the vendetta, you know, which was uh, planned and uh, carried out. And so this is the aftermath of families torn apart, families, I guess, mass grief, really. Yes, uh, some of our grief never really ends. Um, it's a little bit like what happens in uh, what happened in Rwanda, where you have people who have to live in the in the midst of. Um, live new lives, really, by trying to reinvent themselves. But some of that grief never really dies. I remember interviewing a 100-year-old man. I think he was 105 when I interviewed him during the, the anniversary, the 50th anniversary of the war. He was a graduate of the London School of Economics, and he lost his father, his, all his brothers, and, you know, uh, he lost people during that massacre. So when I was asking him why, how he survived, I remember him, by this time he was blind. And of course, you know, there is a way blind people look because they seem to be a bit um, innocent of the expressions of how expressive their faces are uh, because they do not see you. They do not see how much emotion you express through your faces. So there was a certain nakedness in his face when he said to me and his voice broke and he said that uh, he survived because he ran away. And uh, he ran away and hid. And there was something of the survivor's remorse in it, uh, living 50 years after his brothers had died, that he alone had survived. And, uh, of course, his life was never the same. His career was lost. His family was lost. And, uh, but he had to make a life through it all. And uh, so, yes, there's that as well, the fact that even as a survivor, you are conscious of, the, of, the, of how lucky you were and how uh, unlucky your society still is for the lessons not learned. Yes. And I think, you know, and we'll get on to modern day a little later in the episode because I think we can draw a lot of parallels and, and, and lessons and anecdotes to, to matters that we're seeing happening across the world and, and most recently on the continent with, with people finding their voices and, and, and wanting more. Do you feel like that was what influenced your decision into becoming a lawyer? Uh, not really. Um, I think uh, the decision to become a lawyer is uh, a lot more complex than that. But what, what certainly uh, living through that experience did to me was to make me understand growing up in the West, away from you know, my homeland, uh, to understand how different the perspectives were. Because uh, throughout the war period, in other parts of Nigeria, life went on as normal. And um, you find the sense of, uh, and a little bit of what happens now, that while two, three million people have lost their homes in the northeast, uh, in many other parts of Nigeria, life continues as normal. 
And uh, uh, people tend to look at disasters, devastations, and, you know, grief that happens in other people's life as though it happened to a block of wood. But when it scratches their skin, they scream blue murder. And so a lot of the opinions uh, which uh, we see now come from people who do not think deeply about issues and who do not feel deeply about issues. Sometimes we feel issues in a very intellectual sort of way, but uh, we only have to think a little bit back to see where intellectual sort of thinking leads the great generality of people. So the consequences of getting things right is devastating for millions of people. But we have a lot of people who are in positions of influence, whether simply because their voice is heard or because they hold levers of power, who are unable to think empathetically on behalf of people who cannot think for them, uh, who cannot act for themselves. This podcast is sponsored by Malay Natural Science. Malay's products are inspired by the rich landscapes, alluring scents, and ancient wisdom of Africa. Their luxurious fragrance and body care range balances 100% natural active ingredients and scientifically proven formulas to heal, protect, and pamper your skin. Malay ships worldwide, and you can buy their products at maleeonline.com. They also offer a free sample if you'd like to try. I do have in bold here empathy, and I think a lot of your writing, you know, whether it's literature, literature or political, is underpinned by a level of empathy that is also scholarly, if if that's if that's a good way of putting it. But I think we'll we'll get to that once we start talking about your work and the work that you've done for a very long time now. But I I, I wanted to go back to sort of being called to bar, and then becoming a writer-in-residence at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. How did that come about? You mean, call, well, I was called to bar in 83, uh, sorry, in 84. So I graduated in 83. And, um, yeah, so right after the, the call to bar, we go to the law school for a year. Uh, so that was in Victoria Island. At that time, there was only one law school in Nigeria. Now there are quite a few. And uh, my class in the law school was a little bit over a thousand, although many of most, many of us have been harvested now by the by the Grim Reaper. But um, yes, yes, the the dreaded COVID, uh, yeah, not the COVID actually. But um, <laughs> uh, I think Life, now, yes, age? age. I think most of us have crossed the sixty barrier now, and uh, I think our national life expectancy isn't much more than that. So there you go. Uh, so yes, um, so I've been in practice. I went straight into practice, of course. Um, I did my youth service in Joss. Uh, I was working for the Legal Aid Council there. That, of course, was a body that set up to give legal aid to indigent people. But at that time, their remit was only in the criminal sector. So you could only get help if you needed, if you're a defendant in a criminal case. So most of my cases then were murder cases. So I, I think my first cases actually were defending murder, murder, victim, murder accused uh, people. Some innocently accused, some, well, properly accused. <laughs> uh, but um, at the time, I realized a lot of people who came to our services were people who needed serious help, but in the civil sector. But I explained to them that statutorily we were limited to helping people charged with serious crimes at the time. So I, I had to start uh, with some of my colleagues. I had to start a, a civil aid uh, a civil aid program, which we did uh, on our own time uh, under the youth service, um, the all youth service lawyers. So I also did TV programs at the time, uh, you know, giving legal help to people. So those were the things I did back in the early 80s. Uh, before I came back to Lagos to start practice. So for anyone who doesn't know what the Ashmolean Museum is, it's basically um, a museum of art and archaeology, which is in Oxford. So how do you then transition from that into becoming a writer in residence there? So I I practiced in Lagos for a few years, 
but I think about the two ta- about two thousand and one, I came to England, uh, and um, I was in Oxford at the time. Uh, the Oxford University, the Ashmolean University is the, the Ashmolean Museum rather is the oldest museum in England, and uh, it is now part of the Ashmolean part of the Oxford University, and so the archaeology department they all have programs in the in the museum. So at the time I had gone into the museum as a visitor and uh, walked through the through the aisles of the museum and uh, I came up upon a a statue. It was a statue of the ram, which was an Egyptian, you know, Egyptian artifact, an Egyptian uh, god. Symbolism yes. as well, yeah. And uh, I began to, I was inspired to write a, a poem about it. And so while I walked through the museum looking at the pieces, I I had all the lines settled in my mind. And then I took one of their literature and I wrote behind it, I wrote the poem. And um, I thought this was a very productive exercise, my interaction with a single artifact. And I wondered how much more I could do if I did a little bit more of that. So I thought I would structure the relationship a bit. I went in and spoke with their management. I think I had a meeting with their deputy director at the time. They had never had a writing residence. They didn't quite understand the concept, but, you know, but, you know, we had a well. Uh, and so throughout my period with them, I think I stayed with them a couple of years. It was a little bit informal, but at the same time, I was able to do seasonal, maybe every quarter I would hold a reading. And so um, it would be advertised in the museum in Oxford at large. People would come in and I would recite um, poems and pieces of my interaction with the pieces in the museum. I'd also bring in some of my friends from... Um, from around. Um, I remember that Afama Care and uh, Molara Wood and uh, a few other people, Norom Azonye, they came around and uh, did uh, performances with me. Uh, and of course, we also had, uh, you know, other poets from Oxford and environs. So it was a good a good time. And we were able to bring in people who, were, who would not normally visit the museum. There was this division in Oxford, still is probably between the town and the gown, and um, uh, and it, it was a uh, it was a place where a little bit elitist, I think. And uh, but by bringing in oral physical performances, uh, usually you, what you'd have in the place would be more academic lectures about artifacts given to university types. But uh, yeah, so this was a cross between scholarly and literary uh, as well as, uh, you know, performative work. Amazing. And I, I say that because I know I did jump two decades uh, when, I, when I wanted you to talk more about that. But, uh, you know, this is your journey or, or ending up there happens, you know, almost 20 years after your first novel, The Extortionist. Yes, uh, my first novel, I, I actually published it while I was still a student. So technically, mm-hmm. you might consider that I became a writer before I became a lawyer. Uh, yeah, published by yes. Macmillan yes, at the time correct. too. So Macmillan... How, how were you able to secure... So if we think of Nigeria at the time, 83, um, you know, this is where, you know, Nigeria is now going into, well, we're almost entering the Abacha administration um and this is you know a good 20 years post you know colonialism and occupation thereof um and we start we're starting to see a, a, a i guess our, our own governed states or states as it were and then you write this book um and then you also find a publisher how does that happen for you or how did that happen at the time for you uh, easily, actually, um, I, I think my first two books were 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 dis- very deceptive because, the, first of all, they were the first two manuscripts I ever wrote, the first two things I ever finished, and they were accepted to the very first, you know, by the very first publishers I sent them to. So I probably got a very bad impression of a uh, very wrong impression, rather, of what publishing was all about. Because is this um, pre the coup d'état or post the coup d'état? 
Well, it depends on which coup d'etat. <laughs> but yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. So the, the coup d'etat in December 31st, yes. 1983, that yes, one. Yes, that so was, yeah, certainly This was. is pre that. That's correct. Uh, I think I was published maybe, I got a first book um, in my hand probably somewhere in April or so. So yes. Of that um, year. Yes. Because um, I, I went into university with Shagari and I left university mm. with Shagari. He got in in 79 okay. like me. He got into yes. power in 79 and, uh, you know, he left power just as I left university. So, yeah. So at, at this point, you have no idea that, um, like, obviously the, the, the writings on the wall and your book speaks to, to some version of this transition. But then in 83, you then write Dangerous Inheritance. Yes. In 83, I wrote Dangerous Inheritance, but it wasn't published until 88. Because about 83, it was accepted to be published, but the economy began to fall apart. And um, they kept putting off publication until one day in 83, they called me and said they were about to publish. And I said, well, you've got to hold on. I've got to revise it. Because that's what happens to books that stay too long. You know, you grow up and you grow out of the, you know, things that impelled you which is why sometimes it's actually quite difficult to read <laughs> old novels, well, depending on how mature you were when you wrote them. But I wrote these books as teenagers, as a teenager. And how much of this work, you know, you speak to, I guess, your age at the time, but how much of this work was starting to birth the consciousness that we see in your work today at the time? And bearing in mind that, you know, your journey through life in Nigeria is woven in time with such monumental events, if I could, if I could put it in, in nicer terms. Um, and it seems that your work sort of follows the same pattern. Well, I think uh, every novel has to, to tick over, particularly if you're a virgin to the thriller genre, you have to thrive on conflict. And even if your life is reasonably sedate, unless you are particularly gifted in putting words together, it is conflict that brings your, that holds your reader, turning the pages to the last book. So I have been dramatic in using conflict in my novels, uh, whether or not anyone would think these are typical of our times. But yes, um, I think after the war, we began to see people who are used to carrying arms, refusing to drop them. And it always happens after every conflict. There's an escalation in, you know, how how desensitized people are. But I think the two, my books tend to play with that theme of corruption a lot. I know I have friends who argue that our problem in Nigeria is uh, more incompetence and idiots in office rather than corruption per se. But I think that uh, corruption is a tree with many fruits, one of which is incompetence. And I think uh, a few people also argue that Nigeria has done so well with, um, with uh, the public sector, the, sorry, the private sector. And if we stop focusing on corruption, 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 that, I mean, look at our film industry, look at our music industry and all that. But I'd like to know where any of these industries would be when a bomb you know, hits the building. So the point is that the public sector corruption is at the core of what we are, is at the core of what we can be. And until we sort out that problem, you know, we are marking time. Is that the, and I, and I use the word loosely, the curse of life after occupation and wanting to define self? And, you know, people use the, the term Africanism. I don't know if I'll, uh, I would use it because I, I might open a can of worms with you. Um, but it, is that the aftermath, really, of life after occupation? It's not necessarily, it's not inevitably the aftermath. Um, mm. are, are you talking about the occupation? When you, when you say occupation, do you mean what happened We've had after several, the, right? After We've the Biafran war ended? Is that what you mean? Well, we've had several within within Nigeria as a country, right? So first we have colonialism, then we have the civil wars, then we have, you know, the the coups, 
the coup d'etats with you know the military and and they all seem to perpetuate the same thing which which speaks to occupation and and the system of occupation and and why you know while there are a group of people who want to break away from that there are a group of people who see that as the only way and i just wonder whether or not the parallel with how you write and and your work is is very much questioning i guess africanism what is that this is my personal my personal thought after spending hours reading about you but yeah yes i think the power of the, nar- the narrative is so huge and unfortunately we have really abandoned and abdicated that power of the narrative a few days ago i did a twitter poll and uh, it was i asked a simple question we have 36 states in nigeria and uh, most of the states now are roiled by these questions of separation. So I asked in this uh, relatively elitist, um, <laughs> elitist uh, Twitter audience, how many people, Nigerians, that is, who have friends from states across Nigeria? So I broke these into four groups, less than five states, less than 10 states, less than 20 states and over 20 states. So the question was, do you have your best, your friends, friends, and I define friends not as Facebook friends and acquaintances, but as people who can, who you can invite home to dinner or who you can go to dinner in their homes, right? So quite a clear, a fair enough definition of what a friend is. So more than half, and I'm talking about uh, 55% of uh, of my poll, my polled audience had friends from less than ten states. So more than, and if you if you picture the fact that Nigeria, each of these regions, we have six basic uh, ge- geopolitical regions. Most of these regions are six to seven states, right? So you can imagine that if if twenty five percent of Nigerians have friends in less than five states, it means that a quarter of Nigerians only have friends who speak their language, okay? And half of Nigerians have friends from less than 10 states, so say a neighboring region. So if we, and of course, of course, it's a very small, you know, statistical number. I mean, we're talking about 518 people who took the poll. So it's not, it's not hugely scientific, but it just gives you a fair idea. And it kind of, you know, uh, tallied up with what I had, I thought prior to that, which is that most Nigerians do not have associations associations with people from outside, from far outside their region. Of course, one in four Nigerians uh, also have, uh, on the other hand, have more uh, contacts and connections. We have people who who are very well traveled and who, but... uh, the key thing is, before you break away, uh, whose narrative have you listened to to make up your mind, I'm going to break away? If we have bandits and uh, looters and uh, tribalists in power and in charge of a narrative, and they prosecute these tribal wars against you from all sides now, right? and they represent their regions in parliament, and you have no friends with whom you can have a countervailing narrative. You cannot pick up your phone and call somebody in Ibadan, if you are in uh, Imo State, for instance, if you are in Oweri. You cannot pick up your your phone and call someone in Mubi, if you are in Wari, and say, what's happening there? What are your people thinking? If all you have are your own ethnic zealots in your ear, as well as the ethnic zealots from the, uh, from the, uh, the most virulent train of uh, zealotry across the regions, and these are the people driving the narrative. You see what I mean? Mm. Now, of course, you could argue that if I... If, if, if the majority of people do not agree with what their leaders are saying, why don't they speak up? But here's a, here's a question. How many people do speak up 
when their leaders are talking. Uh, all our leaders in the National Assembly, do they represent us? Good. So uh, are their actions on our behalf our actions? Are there positions on issues like the most expensive parliament in the world, like in approving trillion dollar, uh, trillion naira loans, are those our positions or are they their selfish positions? So if we cannot speak up to refute the positions taken by our own leaders, why do we expect the same of the silent majority across the regions? So it's all about that narrative for me. Who is in charge of a narrative? What are they saying? What are they communicating in the narrative? And, uh, and uh, who is believing it? Uh, we've had a lot of experiments in Nigeria. We've had the federal government colleges. We've had the national youth service uh, programs. And most of us who did not go through federal government colleges went to the national youth service, assuming you had a degree. And the question really is, <laughs> among citizens who in, primary, in, in secondary school at great cost to the federal government were subsidized in the education and they met people from 36 states in Nigeria or maybe 12 at a time, among these people, how many of us were able to keep contact with our classmates uh, through our journeys in life? How many people in their 60s and 50s and 40s today can pick up their phone and dial a classmate from, if they were living in Enugu, dial a, a classmate from Ilore, dial a classmate from, uh, um, from Sokoto? How many people? How many people are able to... I guess in, in principle, the intention, the intention is not the outcome, which, which is, yes. I guess, what you're saying. Yes. And and to be able to create the outcome as intended um, requires a, a, a real shift in in mindset, right? Like ultimately, it requires a shift in society as a whole for for as intended those outcomes to yield the results that they were meant for. Or I guess your question is, are they really meant for that at this stage? Yes, I think no. My my position is that uh, we don't realize our role in dictating a narrative. <laughs> and each person, for instance, can dictate a narrative. If you were the, at the center of this experience, Federal Government College, National Youth Service, uh, posting in wherever it is, it was your option to, you know, to forge relationships with people which would change the narrative of whatever anybody tells you, uh, Yoruba has hit I say, well, <laughs> I'm afraid I've got six of my best friends who are Yorubas. I've known them all their lives. I'm their godmother, godfather of their children. So that narrative that Yorubas hit Igbos is dead in the water as far as I'm concerned. And as far as everybody who I speak with is concerned, I can now isolate it to say, well, this Yoruba zealot hates Igbos and would love for Igbos to hate all Yorubas, but it won't fly with me because my personal experience is different. One of your quotes that I, I, I quite love is, great stories can change us. And also speaking in the same vein is one that I love from Maya Angelou, where she, she basically says, words are things. And, you know, one day we'll be able to measure the power of these words. Um, I think they are things. They get on walls. They get in your wallpaper. They get in your rugs, in your upholstery, in your clothes, and finally into you. And I guess to speak to your point, um, you both, you know, beautifully articulate the point, which is these narratives have taken root and taken root almost like a cancer and are permeating through our society and, and, and ravaging our through, through society in Nigeria and, and ravaging through communities um, worse than some of the, these atrocities that we face. I don't know if I summarized that nicely, um, but it was one of the things that I, I pulled out in, in, in your work that I wanted to really talk about. And I think your work speaks to that. Um, I want to go into your use of, I guess, new technology, blogging, Twitter. You know, you kindly shared your age. And <laughs> one, one, of, one of the questions most people have for writers, especially today, right, which is, well, when people can self-publish, you have all these platforms where your work can be put out. Um, 
you've managed to survive 30 something odd years of consistently and continuing to write um, as a writer, as a poet, as a literary. Um, and, you know, you gave us a great illustration of, of, of how that can transform into, you know, performative um, arts. Why blogging? Why Twitter? Why blog for 15 years? Well, that's, that's um, I think as soon as I, I uh, started my website, um, probably 2008 or thereabout, I'm not sure now, but I, yeah, I started a blog and um, I've kept it up. It's not been consistent. I think at some point, most of my writing went to Facebook and uh, most of my interaction with my readers was on Facebook. But uh, at, at the end of the day, there's a sense in which any platform that you don't control is not yours. Because, for instance, um, I, I had quite um, some material on Facebook notes at some point. And then I hadn't been there for a while and I went back then. I realized that, well, they had decided to, you know, mothball it. And, uh, and of course, it, it was all gone. Um, so some of our writing as writers, I mean, it's a little bit a la carte. I mean, I'm not necessarily more productive than any writer because I blog, you know. Um, there's a sense in which blogging is like, um, is like, uh, is like an oral tradition. Whereas um, when you internalize your work and you, you uh, commit it to a longer form in a more permanent publishable when I say publishable, I mean it hits the, the, the market in a discrete form, either in a magazine page or, a, uh, or a, no, a book. So there's a sense in which that is considered the real writing. And then what, everything else you do is a moral form of that, uh, that practice. But I've chosen to, to, you know, uh, to, to blog. And even though I've not been consistent, I, yeah, some years I do only maybe a dozen Blog. Some other years are more prolific. So it all depends on what's happened in my life at the time. Do you see that as journaling? And then what you do on Twitter, like some of your blogs are even your thoughts around, you know, a tweet. Yes. Uh, that you've read. I think one of the things I've come to learn is to write, write shorter <laughs> for, for public consumption. Um, it, that wasn't a very hard lesson because I'm primarily a short story writer. I think most of my collections, most of my work is in short stories. I have the 100 tale collection. I have, yeah, so I don't find it hard at all writing shorts, but most of my think pieces tend to be quite long because I'm, I have this articulated way of thinking that just keeps latching on to things and expanding the. But I've learned to, you know, to curtail that, um, to. And uh, while I do have some long reads, uh, when I let myself go, yes, you know, around tweets. Tweets uh, have been the... In fact, I, I regretted the move from 140 to... Is it 280 characters? or Yeah. Because, you know, I, I think um, the shorter the form, the more it forces you to compress your thoughts. So, yes. So I, I quite enjoy that, um, you know, writing to tweets because it helps you to just... Examine one idea and leave it at that. When we speak of, I guess, when people refer to you as one of Africa's literary heroes, how does that sit with you? Because you're you're in company of Chino Achebe and you know Wally Shoenkan and and I guess you know more writers who and poets who have written. I guess, similar subject matter, but different lens. Well, if they refer to me as that, uh, quite frankly, I would, uh, I would turn around, um, you know, I would uh, turn around to look for who they were talking about. <laughs> but I think what uh, we can all do is to try to be our own heroes, mm. um, which means uh, try, to set, try to do what you set out to do in the morning, try to accomplish that by evening. It's a very difficult thing because... Um, you know, you constantly look for encouragement along the road. That encouragement is not always there. But I, I think I've early recognized that what I want to do is to document my, 
my thinking. And that documenting comes from writing. And I've also come to understand that for me, what is important is not so much how many people read me or if people read me, but if I have written and if I'm available to be read. And I think if anybody complains of publication in the 21st century, I mean, you're not just not being fair at all. Because never in the history of the world has <laughs> whatever rubbish you write been so easy for anybody to read. And what has actually made reading very difficult now is the huge, huge uh, variety of things to read. Uh, previously, uh, the only idiots who have access to <laughs> the public's eye are the idiots with connection in the printing presses. But now everybody has an access to the public eye. And uh, so, yeah, so it's, it's a search for the eye, eyeballs. And what distracts us as writers from <clears throat> what we have to write is this search for the eyeballs, you know, the, you know, the access to the publishers, the access to the platforms. And if we spend, you know, 80% of our time looking for these platforms, it's off uh, searching for the platforms, access and all that. It means that we're only doing 20% of the work we are capable of, or at least 20% uh, of the quality work we are capable of. So um, I early decided to focus my time, 80% of my time, on writing the work I'm happy with. Happy with. And so uh, that may have colored you know, what I do and how I do it and what results or lack of it I have achieved. But um, I'm quite happy with it. That takes me to a question I have around publishing. You are now a publisher of your own work and your decision to do that, um, given that your early work was with a big publishing house like Macmillan. How have you found that transition, especially as things have changed, as you've rightly pointed out, where there are more mediums now to share your work? And then I have a second question around, you know, the purpose of writing and art, because you did touch on on, on why you write. Yes, um, it's a vexed question. I mean, in an ideal world, the writer has no, pub no business publishing his work. But that's in an ideal world. We don't live there. And even if we live there, I think we live there mostly when we live abroad and outside the African continent. Um, most of the writers, with, publishers with muzzle, you have to count Macmillan amongst them. They were able to do something really, truly miraculous for the time in the 70s and the 80s with uh, the Pesita series. Because they did a fully African series, they did a series that was available across the African continent, where I speak at least to English-speaking Africa. Um, and um, they published a series that uh, they were able to put in bookshops literally in every city because they had warehouses right across the place. And people who came from school for school books were presented by salesmen with Pesita stories. So this was a boon for writers. You could write something in a small village in, in uh, Uganda and your work could be read in Egypt or wherever it is. And, uh, but it was not to last. Um, over time, the interest of the publisher and the writer diverged. And um, of course, I think part of it was the crash in the Nigerian economy. So I remember at a time, some time ago, um, a, a school, a university told me they wanted to study, well, a Pesita series. They wanted some four, four to 800 copies of the book. I told my publishers, and they told me they were happy to supply the books if um, I paid in advance. And the books were not in stock, and uh, they were happy to supply them if I paid for them, and then they would place the order and then deliver it. Well, I, I wrote back to tell them that I did not have a vanity publishing contract with them. And um, so that, uh, that opportunity fell by the wayside. So gradually you can see the interests of writer and publisher diverging. So from very high, uh, very high, from a very high beginning, it came to quite a very low point to this 
to the extent now that uh, Macmillan has actually surrendered, or should I say the successors to Macmillan, because Macmillan no longer publishes uh, uh, Pacetas. So they have now surrendered their, their publication interests in the books. It was really not a decision that a writer takes lightly. It is really not a decision that writers take lightly, but it is sometimes a decision that is, um, that is uh, pushed onto the writer. And, uh, but my last book, uh, Extinction of Manai, was published by Ohio Publishers, Ohio Press, which is um, a, an imprint based in, um, in the U.S. It's a university press, an academic press, and, uh, but uh, it's also co-published in Africa by presses in Somaliland and Ghana. Uh, what, uh, Writers Project uh, is publishing it in Ghana, and then of course Guandustan is publishing it in Nigeria. But uh, the the US and uh, you know UK rights are you know held by Ohio publishers. So I still I'm not in a on a on a war front with publishers. I still do collaborations with publishers across the space. But yes, like I said, my my ambitions have diverged in the, in writing. And right now, I'm basically in a position to document my work. Yeah. And you've also, you know, through through your success and through your lessons, created space for other African writers with the African Writing Magazine. Yes, that's, that's correct. Um, I think for a period of um, perhaps up till 2012 or so, we published an African writing magazine, and uh, it was home to quite a lot of significant work. Uh, right now, I have to admit, but you know, when we started off, the idea was that at the time there was very little space for publishing by African writers, uh, and this was African writing very broadly defined. If you are writing as a non-African in Africa, as an African outside Africa, as yeah, yeah. So we we thought that the one or two percentage of the publishing space, publishing real estate we get in magazines, literary magazines across the world was not sufficient to curate and to, you know, to display the huge possibilities we had. So we started it off. I, I started with Afamake and um, over the years, um, we published quite a few things. Uh, quite a few African writing, quite a lot of um, African writing. Um, <clears throat> right now, there is a lot more real estate in which you can do what we used to do. So, and of course, during that period, uh, my writing literally, you know, stopped. You know, it was a, basically a full time thing to to put that out. Uh, so yes, so but now I'm happy to say that there is a lot more flowering on the scene of African literary magazines, good quality ones for that matter. So the, yes, so the, that, um, that need has been served. I think there's still space in publishing uh, and it's not necessarily in a strictly literary, uh, literary field. I think it's more in the communication field. Don't forget that literary writing is a very small field. All the people who are liter- literate, uh, probably just 1% of them will be interested in literary writing. That's a much more rarefied and, uh, you know, uh, curated sector. Uh, so, yes, so <laughs> so you got that right. So I think there's still a lot more to be done uh, in the in the publishing, uh, magazine publishing field. Yeah, so, but not necessarily in the literary, strictly literary, uh, literary field. Your activism has taken so many forms over the years. It has taken, we've talked about some of them, um, but it also has taken the form of the bribe code where you have actively campaigned for change when it comes to corporate corruption. Do you mind, I guess, sharing, because the evolution of your activism has taken from your work how you write, to creating space for other people, even as early as when you were practicing as a lawyer and offering legal aid, with which is, you know, part of your work. 
might not be part of your liter literary work, but part of who you are and, and what you are hoping to leave the world with. Do you feel as though by tackling corporate corruption and, and campaigning as, as, as fervently as you have, that's just another hat and there will be another and another and another till you can't anymore? No, I think that, I think that uh, the campaign for good governance is at the root of what I am. And I think it is at the root of what everybody is. It's just that they don't understand it yet, you know? Um, I think that for all of us who are so much into our private spaces, we're inventing the next internet, we're painting the next masterpiece, writing the blockbuster, all that ends when the bomb arrives. I don't know how many writers there are who are busily writing in Palestine right now. Uh, the truth of the matter is that it is in our best interest that we are well governed. And so long as uh, we have not sorted that out, Okay, for instance, now people are crying for referendum in, in, in Nigeria. And uh, <clears throat> they believe that referendum would solve all our problems. And, um, and the idea is that once you give people a choice, that they will take the choice and everything is good thereafter. But the truth of the matter is that if you ask a wrong question in a, in a referendum, you will get a wrong answer. It will not be the first referendum in, the, in Africa, even in Nigeria, the first referendum in Nigeria was held in the 60s when Southern Cameroon decided to go with uh, Cameroon. And uh, they ended up being, of course, now they are fighting to be free of Cameroon. But nobody remembers that in the 60s, they answered the referendum question, do you want Nigeria or Cameroon? And they answered they want to join their brothers in Cameroon. And of course, the story is um, different today the Ambazonia Republic is campaigning to have another referendum and leave. Now, the question is, was that decision, was that question right or wrong? I mean, Northern Nigeria, Taraba State now, decided to stay in Nigeria. They're better off. You know, they're now fighting the Boko Haram. So whether you are going with the deep sea or the, or the, or the, the hell or the deep sea, you know, it's a bad question. But the one question that was not on that referendum was good governance. And nobody asks that question. We want the simpler thing of, oh, I want self-governance. And uh, if you look at uh, something, something like Eritrea, Eritrea is the last uh, referendum we had. Again, it was supervised by the United Nations. 99% of, of uh, Eritreans voted to leave Ethiopia. They left in 1993. And then the head of state started off on a five-year tenure in 1993, and up till today, that five year has not ended. So the question is, will the referendum ended, solve yeah. your problem, yeah. or will you simply get into another, you know, get into another hell because you did not ask the right question? Yeah, the right question. And I, and I love that you say that because, you know, one of the last questions I had for you was the aspirations that our culture teaches us to have. Because like you said, the aspiration is, you know, paint the next masterpiece, um, you know, write the next blockbuster. And, and that aspiration is what we are fed, even within our own families, right? Be a lawyer, doctor. Um, that aspiration doesn't extend beyond what the wider environment could be if you chose or if you were allowed to pursue that interest. And very few people get that opportunity to do it as in the, in the way that you have. What do you say to someone who is questioning that at the moment? Because if, if we think of economically, the average African is looking to for how to better themselves, regardless of where they are in the world, to be able to afford the choice of options. Uh, okay, so I, I suppose you're asking how to meet your bills so you can aspire to do more than just sort yourself out, right? Pretty much, because you're saying we're not asking the question about good governance, um, but the average person, their, their worldview isn't that. Their, their worldview is, you know, I've got these bills to pay. I would like X life. These things give me options. And perhaps they run out of time to do more. Um, you found a way to do more which is why I've asked the question. 
No, I think nobody can ever, nobody can tell you how much you need to be a human being, you know? Uh, nobody can tell you how much money you, earn, you need to earn to now grow balls. But it's always an individual question. At what point do you say, no, um, I say my expatriate boss is now exploiting me, I'm working out on the job. I will not debase myself to do X, Y, Z to do this. Those are personal questions. And it's always going to be a personal question. The, the search for let me make myself and my children comfortable never ends. Billionaires are still trying to fight that. I think I made a, I sent out a tweet recently about how it is that, um, you know, you can argue, oh, my parents were poor. Uh, they left me debt. That is why I had to steal, uh, you know, money from the health center I was supposed to build, the school I was supposed to build. But now gradually you become a billionaire and you find you're still stealing and you have to confess to yourself that you're just a thief, you know? So there is no, nobody can answer that question for you. Nobody can tell you at what point you have grown enough balls to do what has to be done in principle. Nobody. It's either you have it or you don't and you never will. And it's really, and, and again, it, I, must, uh, I must say that I have not uh, crossed that line yet. Um, I do not consider that I have taken steps that would single me out as somebody who has stepped out beyond that. No, I haven't. And so these words, I am speaking directly to myself. And, and the truth of the matter is that every word of censure I have spoken to my country, I have spoken to myself, I put myself in the firing line because I have not distinguished myself uh, from that country. Indeed, I, what I have to say is particular because I challenge people, people who say, oh, I'm ethical, I'm this, I'm that. I say you are that because you are not in the country. If you are in the country and you do not fight to transform that country into an ethical place, you will become unethical in the decisions you make, in the things you decide to unlook and the things you decide to do. And so that's the challenge we have, that um, if we value an ethical society, we need to work for it by transforming where we are. Let me just talk very briefly about the bribe code. Yes, please. Uh, that, that's where my, my questioning was leading. So yes, please do. Yes. So, so the bribe code uh, is really about answering that question about how we, as, uh, how we can change, ask the right questions, you know? how we can ask the question about good governance as opposed to the questions about or oh, change of uh, the, the size of a country or change the number of uh, tribes or ethnic nations in a country. I don't use the word tribes, really. Uh, change the number of ethnic nations in a country or change the head of state. Uh, be, because these are, the, these are really the things that are driving our separatist movements. So if we focus on governance, you find out that, okay, I'll give you the simple example of, uh, of uh, Museveni, who 35 years ago campaigned to be president of, uh, he fought a war to become the head of state of, uh, of uh, Uganda. And I published a, a video, I put out a video where he, when he was in military fatigues and governing and fighting, he said he was a servant of the people. He was uh, doing this because the people asked him to do that. And then 30 years later, he is head of state and he's saying, who is saying I'm a servant of the people? I'm not your servant. I'm just a freedom fighter fighting for myself. He said this as a head of state. And this is the graph that every leader goes through. The humble opposition leader or freedom fighter who gets into power and becomes transmogrified by power into a monster. And we have the record there, almost every African country. Question is, how do we change it? And that's what bribe code answers. And the answer is to transform every citizen in Nigeria into a, an anti-corruption uh, worker. So the first thing we do, there are three main things that are involved in the bribe code. The first is to change the penalty for serious corruption from a fine or from imprisonment to total assets for future. So if you are guilty of serious corruption, instead of getting a fine or whatever they do now, you get totally, you lose all your assets. That's the first thing. The second thing is to create a, an incentive for information. And that's where you bring in every Nigerian 
So anybody who brings information about serious corruption gets a 1% of the returns when it's recovered. And the third aspect is universal prosecution. We have so many instances, so many instances of the Attorney General of Nigeria, not just the current one, but right down in history, being able to terminate prosecutions against you know, very clear offenders because he wants to or because he's been reached. And that power of nolle prosequi is the power to end prosecution. But under the bribe code, all 37 attorney generals in Nigeria would have the power to prosecute serious corruption. And when they successfully prosecute the corruption, they acquire the assets, total assets forfeited into the treasury of the states that prosecute, which makes it one of the, uh, another major access or opportunity for internally generated revenue. So if we have the bribe code as structured like that in the toolkit of Nigeria, it means that literally corruption will be eliminated from the bottom because there's almost every sector that consider every, everybody who approaches the seat of corruption would find that they are either put out of business before they start or very soon after they've started. That clears the room of the godfathers. Right now, for instance, if we want to do a secession campaign and we do a referendum, we have a corrupt electoral system which is owned by godfathers and togs. And we all know the people who own the machinery in each state. So godfathers are there to put down money before elections to recover money after elections. The bribe code means that any investment you make in politics if you try to recover it by way of corrupt contracts or all that, you lose everything you had already. So that cleans the room. It clears the room of godfathers, of electoral malpractice. It opens the room to honest people of vision who want to transform our politics, who want to work and serve, not to make money, but to change the country. So you can see already that the bribe code could potentially be the transformative agent in our society. Thank you. Thank you. I think that's a, a really apt description um, and, a, and a great incentive for people to start thinking a little bit outside of the box and, and where they can fit in um, to start making a change. How, how do people get behind that scheme um, to, to help you give it more legs? Well, we have a website we have a website. Uh, it's called www.bribecode.org. That's one word. So that's bribe and code, one word. And uh, if you go to the website and sign up, the petition goes off to the National Assembly right away. And uh, the whole idea is to get people behind one way to get uh, to sort out our problems. Because uh, one of the things being touted now is that if we go our different ways, we'll be fine. But if we have belligerent countries on both sides of the divide, <laughs> you know what I mean? If you have badly run countries on two sides of a border, you are worse than you were before. Because right now, for instance, you have Igbos, Yorubas, Hausas campaigning for good governance in Kaduna State as we speak. Now, once you divide a country, you know, it's not the business of anybody else outside, that, outside Kaduna State. So if you have a dictator in Kaduna State, in Kaduna country, everybody in Kaduna State is in the pocket of that dictator. So essentially, our voice for good governance as a country is more effective as a country. And if we can enable good governance across the country and then secede, you can be sure that nobody is going to have a, say, Boko Haram country with a nuclear warhead trained at you. Uh, so essentially, uh, uh, Palestine and Israel will not become safer by a border. India and uh, pa Pakistan will not be safer. A line in the sand did not make India safer. And uh, uh, what we need is to have good governance in place so that the countries are ruled by people who are not, uh, do not have affiliations to themselves alone. And that is essentially what the bribe code tries to do. Great. And where, where can people find you? My website is uh, mokolo.com. So um, 
my books, I have a dozen of them now, not, not uh, um, so they are mostly available through the website or, you know, through Amazon. And my blog, of course, uh, is... Yeah, Waterstones too, I see. You've got Waterstones. They're widely available if they just search for your name, right, on, on the internet. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Chuma, for joining us on this week's episode of Third Culture Africans. I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation um, and hopefully our listeners can follow up with you and also read your blog. I, I enjoyed the blog, so it's, it's a great, great way of a, a great reading, easy and, and, and light reading. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Zizi, and I wish you all the best on your podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Third Culture Africans. We are building a community of leaders and game changers and would love you to join in the conversation on thirdcultureafricans.com. Subscribe for news, for tips and more useful resources on today's topic and more episodes to ignite and inspire your entrepreneurial journey. Carry on the conversation on Facebook and Instagram at Third Culture Africans. Your ratings and reviews are important to us, so please leave one on your favorite streaming platform and help us amplify our voices. Until next time, you are valid, you are strong, and you are just getting started. 